This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. The brain has the ability to protect and heal itself much the same way our bodies are designed to heal after a physical wound. The important thing to remember is that your own brain will be doing the healing, and you are the one in control. Valeria Telles interviews Ginny Gray, LCSW Certified EMDR Therapist, Certified Recovery Coach, and Speaker. Ginny Gray is a clinical therapist specializing in addiction and trauma. Her experience with individuals and group counseling is extensive. She began her career at family centers in Greenwich and Darien, Connecticut, while also interning at Arms Acres in the Bronx, New York, providing substance abuse prevention and counseling for children in residential foster care. From 2008 through 2020, she was the addiction and trauma specialist for the Center for Hope and Renewal in Greenwich, Connecticut, providing counseling to children adolescents, and families in Fairfield and Westchester counties. Ginny started hand-in-hand counseling in 2021. Ginny grew up in New York City, attended Phillips Academy in Andover, Hollins University, and earned her master's in social work at NYU. She is an avid and competitive athlete and mother to two grown children. Meet Ginny at handinhandcounselingct.com. Here's the interview with Ginny Gray. In your own words, who is Jimmy Gray? I am a 58-year-old woman who lives in Connecticut who has two grown children and a husband and lots of interests. And I came to realize when my children were going away to school that I was going to be, nobody was going to know if I ever got out of bed again. And so I wanted to be able to have some more purpose and some work in my life. And I spent the year before they left, trying to figure out what that would be. And I got off the phone one day talking to a woman who had a child with debilitating addiction. And I knew a lot about addiction. And I got off the phone with her after a pretty difficult conversation. I felt like 
I, that was right. I, that was important. That had, that was good. And what did doing more of that look like? And so I went back to graduate school and I became a licensed clinical social worker and um, specializing in addiction and in the last couple of years in trauma. And I find my natural ability is to really understand how people are experienced experiencing their lives. And I understand even if their behavior is troublesome or reactive or, or even if they're in the throes of addiction, I can understand why they are where they are. I believe that behavior makes sense, but that when people come and work with me, I can pretty easily identify their strengths and their what's inside them that they probably lost touch with. Because if you're coming to me, you're probably not feeling as confident and as good about yourself. And I try to help identify that and help mirror that back to them so they have that to draw on as they learn to negotiate life better and build tools, whether they are you know, learning how to deal with addiction or we're doing EMDR for trauma. It just having them see themselves as valuable gives me the chance to find the person who will have more hope for themselves um, for the future. So I don't, that's a long answer to a short question. I think my second official question to you, Jimmy, is about the purpose of the human experience. What do you think that is? What is the purpose of the human experience? Yeah. I don't know whether I can say what the purpose of everyone's human experience is, but I believe that at least for me in the amount of you know days that I have on this earth, that I make the most out of the God-given gifts that I have, that I continually learn and that I my purpose is to live the life I, I want to live the way I want the world to be. Mm, so right, right. I want to be kind. I want to be considerate. I want to be interesting and interested. I'm very, very lucky in that the work I, I get to see people live more effectively and more happily by working with them. And that is a huge gift. So that is, if I can make other people's lives better, then my life is exponentially better. If I'm struggling with something, if I can go to work and work with somebody else, that completely changes my, the way I feel about anything. It just, it makes things make sense to me if I can be of help to others. And I think that is probably, at least for me, that's the purpose of life. I do have another question for you, the warm-up questions. Healing, what is healing to you and what are some of the misconceptions we have about healing? Healing to me is when somebody has been broken through life for whatever, however that's happened and can't live their lives in the way that they want to live. And so healing to me is finding your way back to a place of confidence. I think we, most of us can think of a time where we feel effective and 
our best selves. And when people come to me, they are having problems tapping into that, having problems feeling that there's something missing, there's something wrong, there's something off. They don't like the way they handle it. They don't like the way they speak to their children or their husbands, or they can't, they see themselves as profoundly less than, and they don't, or they don't feel themselves deserving, or um, they're too afraid of taking chances or risks that for other people are you know, or most people would think are um, commonplace. And so I think healing is giving somebody back the body and mind to allow them to engage in life effectively and positively. And some of the misconceptions, do you have anything in mind? Yeah, I think so. Misconceptions, I think that I work a lot with trauma and sometimes I'll give a good example. So I had a client, a young woman who is about 30 years old and strikingly beautiful. And she had a very, very serious drinking problem, but she, she was going to AA. She was doing, she was coming to therapy. She was, she was sort of, she was trying to do all the things that she was told to do to get sober, but she would relapse over and over again. And she would drink herself into the hospital almost every time or every night. And what I realized was, you know, people would be like, gosh, she's got everything going for her. And people would help her with a, give her a place to live. And she would meet nobody. And it was so hard to understand. And then what I learned was that she had so much trauma. She had so much pain. There had been such damage done to her um, that she witnessed in her lifetime. And though that trauma, trauma lives live. It's not a distant past. You feel it as if it's happening to you. And I realized that the pain that she had to experience when she was sober, that kind of trauma was so much worse than the consequences that she had when she was drinking. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody is looking at like, why doesn't she just get sober? Why do they just fix this? Or why do they just keep doing that? Right. It is, there is a reason why people do things that we don't understand or don't make sense. And that if you give time and you give them the right platform and leave it open for them without judgment, you can maybe allow the body and mind to heal and it can quiet down and they can be more effective and be able to, you know, heal, as you said before, and be the kind of people that they want to be. What is your idea and understanding of balance? Do you ever use that word? Yes, I think balance is really important. I think, and I think it's different for different people. I think it's a balance is meeting the requirements that we really, or the obligations that we have to the people we love and the people we care about and to the communities that we live in, as well as taking care of ourselves. I think 
I use a metaphor for my clients a lot, which is that of a pitcher. So if you're like a, like a pitcher of water, and so if you aren't taking care of yourselves and, and putting things into your pitcher, whatever that is, if you realize that you need time to meditate or take a walk or play a tennis game or whatever it is, it's things that make you feel good about yourself and fill up your pitcher, then you have the ability to give it away. If it's empty, then you're going to feel like things are being taken from you or you're going to have to do them. And it builds resentment and then negative feelings about yourself. So I think balance is an important realization of what I need to have in order to be an effective um, individual out in the world. That reminds me of the idea of self-love, the unconditional self-love or going back to it, practicing that. And I feel like it's an active, I think I think of it as a very active. Mm, Yes. And Mm, non-negotiable. I love that. Yeah, even more. Right, non-negotiable. Take care of yourself and you don't put something in your picture and and you also, you take care of yourself versus looking to others to take care of you. Yeah. Then you aren't in control of the water in your picture. Do you have any spiritual practices or belief systems, Jimmy? I have gone through various times in my life that have been more spiritual than other times or more actively spiritual. I worked for a faith-based counseling center for the first 10 years of my practice. And I loved that when it was the best it could be because people behaved with honesty and transparency, kindness and trust. And, um, and I felt, felt very much, I'm, I was raised in a Christian tradition. And so I thought I was always like, what would Jesus do? And I thought, you know, Jesus would be kind and, and loving and non-judgmental. And I just, I liked living in that. I liked living that way. I like trying to do the right thing. I like watching people be kind and considerate, not, not to the point where that they are taken advantage of, right, but right. that they, I like seeing the world make sense. Mm. And people being the best, you know, using their gifts and talents to make, you know, to set examples and to do for others. Or I don't know, just, you know, I think that is, if I'm operating positively spiritually, it is living in a kind, good, loving, somewhat, not sacrificial in, in that I'm not leaving myself with anything, but in a way that is about others as Mm -hmm. much as myself. Talk to me for a moment about the services you offer. I know your website has different kinds, individuals, family and group counseling, intense case management, addiction consulting, and eye movement. Oh, that's a tough word to pronounce. Eye movement sensitivity. So, So as a clinical therapist and with a focus on addiction and trauma, um, I work with individuals and families um, or couples. And my specialty is around addiction. And dealing with addiction is its own sort of kettle of fish. It's a very different kind of practice. I mean, if you don't understand addiction, then it's, it's so baffling and, and, and hard to understand how people get 
will basically throw their lives away day after day and the people around them end up feeling that you would rather drink or do drugs more than be my child or be my husband and it affects the family system so I work in that world and I draw on a lot of different um, resources, whether it's a 12-step program or something called smart recovery or, and I'm, I'm skilled in motivational interviewing, which is another way of approaching addiction to help people to get through the denial that people have. And then what I realized a number of years ago, like I alluded to in my example, was I realized that so many people's addiction came from underlying trauma. And I wasn't, until I learned how to treat the trauma effectively, there were people I would never be able to help with their addiction because their addiction was the only way that they could escape their trauma. And, you know, when I realized I wanted to be skilled in treating trauma. I looked for the most evidence-based modality. And I had read a book by Bessel van der Kolk, who is probably the kind of one of the fathers of trauma, and wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is a hugely well-known book, which I'm sure a lot of people are more than aware of. But he very much talked about the healing powers of EMDR. And so that has been a godsend for me and for my clients in my practice. So for those who don't know this modality, Jamie, how does it work being, yeah. EMDR was developed as a treatment for the intense and debilitating symptoms that result from a traumatic experience, as well as for the symptoms that are a result of chronic abuse or um, neglect that people experience through their lives. What it's based on is, or the science believes that the brain has its own natural ability to process memories and to heal itself and the impact of trauma. So like I said, when somebody, it may maybe they're in a terrible car accident and you know, the car accident's over, they're fine, they're safe, they, you know, it was horrible, but they can't get into a car, they're scared of now, they are scared of leaving their house, they are not, they're, they're not being able to distinguish between that was then and this is now. And using EMDR, which is a very process-driven modality, which is kind of the opposite of psychotherapy or talk therapy, which is kind of a free-flowing, clinically directed or managed therapy. But EMDR believes that we can create the condition for a client that sort of replicates REM sleep, which is the time of, is when we process all the experiences we have and our brain naturally prunes them and keeps the experiences that we need and puts them sort of in a timeline or a memory bank that we can draw on, but we can distinguish between that was then and this is now. And that when somebody has a traumatic event, basically your brain has gone, it has, we've tapped into that very high alert part of our brain, that fight, flee, or freeze part of our brain. And in order to protect us, to run away, to you know, fight back. And when we can't do that, you know, your brain freezes. And 
what happens is the executive function, the thinking part of your brain goes offline and the, your, 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 everything gets coded through your senses. So what happens is that unless it's processed, unless we get a way of making sense of that traumatic experience, basically your brain stays on high alert. It's always looking to protect you from the danger. And by creating this condition through EMDR, um, we can, and it's not a trance, I'll tell you in a second, how did we do it? But um, we allow the, we create the condition by which the brain can heal and process that trauma so that we can allow it, your sort of the warning sign to go back down to where it goes to, and the memory or that traumatic experience becomes part of your memory as opposed to something that you have to um, deal with every day of your life. And EMDR is very, basically we look at a triggering situation that somebody is dealing with in the present and we ask them to you know to talk about the emotions and what their experience is and the hallmark of trauma or the, the two ways that I look at trauma is that one is or diagnosed trauma is one that they don't they can't live in the present they're still experiencing the same symptoms those same fears they can hear the sounds or they feel responsible they're they're living in a somewhat of a terror um, circumstance and they also come out with a negative perception of themselves so if somebody is you know a victim of chronic abuse or neglect as a child instead of coming away with it like I was a victim they believe that they somehow were responsible I or they come out with saying I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or I had something to do with it and so we by understanding what those negative perceptions are and coming from the experience that they are that's triggering them we basically have them imagine uh take a picture of what that's like have them very consciously just go back in their memory banks and try to remember when they first began to feel that way and we start with the first memory and we basically have to ask them to bring that up and by we have them tap into um the by using bilateral stimulation which is can be either watching my fingers go back and forth have have them track my fingers or um holding two then call them pulsers or something there's this two kind of paddles that vibrate, they go back and forth and back and forth. And that's sort of replicating REM sleep. And that we basically, as they float back in time, and as we open up the, let the brain sort of open up, you see the brain talking to itself and allowing it to pick up all these fragments of memories and allow it to process and heal and then see it in the way that it should be seen, whether they were a victim or the, the accident is over, that they are safe now. And um, it, it's gotten a lot of notoriety recently because Prince Harry talked about it with Oprah. And that was the modality that healed him from his childhood trauma, losing his mother. I'm wondering if in the process of relearning, per se, of the brain, yeah. um, is that something that the patient 
notice? Do they know? Are they aware of those processes? Yeah, because what we do is we have them bring up the during the process. We come up with the sort of a memory of you know the first time they felt this that, that terrible sense of dread or whatever comes up for them, and we'll say as you bring up that image, how distressing is that for you now on a scale of one to uh, zero to ten, and they'll say. 10 being the most distressing and what is the negative perception of yourself? Maybe they, they'll say, Oh, um, I'm not worthy or it was my fault or what, something like that. And we'll ask them, what would you prefer to feel? I prefer to feel that I, you know, I was just a child or it's not my fault. And we ask them to say, if you bring up that memory, how true does it feel to say that wasn't my fault? And they'll say, it was seven being that's very true. One being that's false. They'll say one that doesn't feel. I I still feel like it was very very disturbing, and it was my fault. And through the processing, we we then test it. We ask them to bring up we bring up that memory. We ask them to notice what they feel in their body, and then we say, how distressing is that for you now? And we process. We keep processing it until it's a zero. They can bring that memory up and they have absolutely no disturbance. And then when you say, and how true do the words, I am worthy or it wasn't my fault or I was a child feel to you now, that is a seven. It's very true that it wasn't my fault. And so that, and until we, until we desensitize, until we have them not be traumatized, not have that intense feeling that, that, they're seeing and experiencing that memory the way they should, then we know that they are going to be better. And it's not, it, it takes time. I mean, I'm giving a short version, but, you know, there's usually a bunch of different memories that have to be processed. To, and in each one of them, we get to that positive result and that no disturbance. But there's usually incidents over time that we have to that we have to process. So neither none of them are continually coming up and interrupting their lives. What drives one person to process traumatic experiences better, per se, than others? Generally? I think really trusting trusting that that your brain actually can heal itself, allowing it. Wow. You don't have to be completely convinced, but the more the people who are just excited or can't or or curious and will let the just trust the processing and let the brain do whatever it does um are yeah. i you find are do better and i'm wondering if there has anything to do with um, emotional intelligence or spiritual beliefs or anything else have you found i don't think so. I think it's really about a willingness. They're so tired of their pain and it's just a belief mm, that they are feeling, uh, you know, a, a need and a want. We don't dive into the trauma. We don't want to re-traumatize people. Right, Sometimes right. elements or fragments of it will come up during the processing, but we're not asked. We don't want people to stay in those awful memories. We just want right. the brain to, you know, do what it does to put it back into this place in the past where it belongs. Sometimes people's internal voice, even if it is very reactive and unhealthy, 
if they're if somebody's drinking is protecting their their them from having to experience pain, it's going to be harder to disconnect the drinking from that. We have to make sure that they fail safe enough so that they don't need to drink anymore. We can we can deal with that. We can suddenly allow the allow the concept of giving up the drinking to in allow it's not going to be an integral life-saving part of their lives or doesn't have to be so right right that's that's making sense at all but yeah so it's going back to the root cause of the issue of the addiction or whatever it is that's usually what it's most effective. It's going back to the roots. What's causing this? Right. Because yeah, everything that we attach to what we are doing, it's just the surface, right? It's just what we is the coping mechanism. Exactly. It's allowing. It's allowing even what we call maladaptive coping, Ma- yeah. adaptive coping right. things to we we allow them. We make it safe enough for them as people. So the maladaptive coping things, whether they do, whether it's eating, drinking, yelling you know, right. running away. They don't have to do that anymore because they're safe. So, Jamie, we're almost at the end of the interview. Would you like to add anything? I think just uh, just in terms of what you were just saying, you know, yes, you want to feel the feelings, but we want our feelings to be, and everybody has different ranges, to, but to be appropriate for the situations. We want to be in mm. control of our feelings. We don't want mm. to feel when we're walking into school or into a meeting or a- any situation and have feel like I'm going right. to die, these overwhelming feelings. Because mm. we think of that as that's a learned response. That's your protective part of you saying that's danger, danger, danger. Don't, you know, don't go there. Um, and we want somebody, we want to allow that part of your brain to calm down so that when there's situations that are not threatening, that right. they are, yes, you can be, you can be anxious or, you know, when, when anxiety is productive, makes you, if you're worried about a test, it makes you study harder or, learn your lines better or whatever, that's fine. But we don't want to feel like, you know, you're going to pass, you're afraid of passing out or Mm. just riddled with anxiety or you can't, or it it freezes people. So we want people to be able to feel their feelings, but have an appropriate reaction to the given situation. I do understand what you're saying. It seems like the, what really makes the whole situation worse is Fearing, yeah, being afraid of the feelings, being afraid of being afraid in a way, it compounds the problem. Not having any control. Although they do feel like that, the emotions when they come a lot of times, but you're saying that that has to do with uh, traumatic experiences. It very much yeah, Right, when we cannot control, right? That makes so much sense. If it hasn't been processed, your brain is doing what it thinks it should be doing, which is warning you of a dangerous situation, but because this is reminding you of a past situation. So that's you're reacting to old stuff, not new stuff. So we want your brain to, if you're safe, to feel safe and, you know, let your, let that warning sign, that warning part of your brain go back to where it is until we really need it the next time when we really are in danger or that's just appropriate. That makes so much sense to me. And I have interviewed somebody about something that I never heard before, the brain contracts. 
So we have all these contracts that we make, which is coming from traumatic experiences. And then we, the brain agrees to act in a certain way when something similar happens. So it's, I think she was talking about the same thing, Stop. for sure. It sounds, it sounds, you know, we, we, our brains are very yeah. smart. Right. They're right. doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're just maybe, it hasn't completed what it, it sort of gets trapped in certain times or certain ways because for good reason there's always there's always yeah. good reason so my last question is to you jimmy let me see yeah what is another word for healing i think living i agree a billion percent yeah right living <laughs> a living i mean that in the best sense so two more questions for you. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving or losing the body, would you make any change or do anything in a different way? I am so blessed to say no. I mean, I don't love every minute of my life and I don't necessarily handle everything that I do perfectly, but I I think I'm doing the best I can. And I do think that I... I'm, in, I'm doing the things that I want to do that have meaning and purpose and that I really enjoy. So I'm happy. I love your answer. Yeah, I love that answer when I hear every time. No, I wouldn't change anything. It's profound. It's nice when asked that question to say no, you know, because I think that's a real blessing. I think if you find yourself living the life that with whatever the cards are dealt to you and you're making, you think you're doing as bad, the best, and you're, you know, I just think I, that's a very, that's a gift. Yeah. To be able to say that. Right. I agree. And my last question is what are three things about life, you know, for sure, as of this moment. That everybody has the capacity to change, that people make mistakes, but that you can learn Things change that I think that things change and that we the some things that we have to learn how to accept, but that we also have a huge capacity to make a difference and change our lives and have an impact on those. So I don't I don't know if that's a really good answer to your question. Yeah, well, is the answer. Our answers are the only answers from my perspective. So thank you so much again, Jimmy, for sharing your wisdom, doing what you do, the work of helping others and everything else in between that could be felt. Thank you. Thank you very much. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your products, services and future projects? Um, my name is Ginny Gray, G-I-N-N-Y, G-R-A-Y. My practice is called Hand in Hand Counseling. And the website is Hand in Hand Counseling um, CT. But I think that's, and it's a picture of two people walking in the snow. Thank you again. I'll have your website on your podcast profile too. Thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Ginny Gray and her work, please visit handinhandcounselingct.com. To learn 
more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.